Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 33, Hidden in Plain Sight. That day, it was around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. It was a Friday after Thanksgiving, and Amanda, or Mandy, stretches out, first her arms, then her calves, before she sprints out the door. She's only 18, but already an avid runner. She loves it, and after a big Thanksgiving dinner the day before, she's looking forward to just getting out there and running. Mandy's running shoes are barely crunching on that long driveway beside the family's rural property when Kyra, her faithful German shepherd, is already at her side. Mandy presses play on her bright yellow sport Walkman. It's November 24th, 1989. She could have been listening to Love Song by The Cure, Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle, or The Bangles, Eternal Flame. Those were all chart toppers in 1989. At the end of her family's driveway, Mandy turns onto Strand Road, which is a long, winding, typical Pacific Northwest country road. It's the perfect place to jog in quiet solitude, and the route she runs is her favorite. It's from Strand Road to the south fork of the Nooksack River, and then she turns back like clockwork, a five-mile loop. Mandy Stavick was comfortable in her routine, her home, and her community. Life was safe, and life was good. As Mandy gets into the zone of running, enjoying the beautiful solitude of a crisp winter day, inhaling that chilly air through her nose, her warm-up is almost over. It's time to pay the piper, and Mandy increases her speed. She was fast. Formidable. Mandy's a high achiever. She's an honor student and an outstanding athlete. She wanted to be the very best at whatever she did. That fall, she'd started college as a freshman at Central Washington University. Central's less than an hour away from Mandy's home in Acme, Washington, a close-knit farming community in Whatcom County. Acme was a place where Mandy's mother, Mary Stavick, a single mom, had carved out a really nice, simple life for herself and her children, Mandy, her older sister Molly, and brother Lee. The family enjoyed a little homestead in this vast rural community. Mandy had gotten a ride home for the Thanksgiving holiday from her ex-boyfriend, Rick Zender, who also attended Central. Mandy's college roommate, Yoko, had come along, too. She was celebrating the holiday season at the Stavik home. It had already been a whirlwind visit. The Wednesday, Thanksgiving Eve, Rick had dropped Mandy and Yoko off at her house around 2. Then later, in the afternoon, they had attended a girls' basketball practice at Mount Baker High. Mandy's alma mater. Then, that Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, Mandy had spent the entire day at home enjoying family, friends, and a huge spread. And the feasting had spilled over into the next day, that Friday morning, November 24th, before Mandy's jog. She'd enjoyed leftovers, and then Mandy and Yoko had gone for a walk, and when they'd gotten back, they made plans to go hang out that night with Mandy's high school friend Brad and his buddy Tom Bass. But before they went out, Mandy wanted to get a jog in. 
and it was around 3 p.m. when Mandy was at the midway point of her jog and turned around to head home. So you've got to remember, this is rural Washington. A neighbor could be half a mile away. And Lee, Mandy's brother, saw Mandy when he was playing at the neighbor's home and knew that she was on her way back home. Her loop was almost complete. Mandy was within minutes of her house, no doubt thinking of the plans to go out with Yoko and her friend Brad, who was bringing along his friend Tom. There was still fun to be had before heading back to Central after the long holiday weekend. A bit later, Lee, Mandy's brother, returns home from playing at the neighbor's house. When he gets there, he asks where Mandy is. And where was Kyra, their dog? Mary tells Lee that Mandy hadn't returned back from her jog yet. And Lee is concerned. He raises the alarm because she absolutely should have been home by now. He saw her heading home. And Mary is instantly concerned. Tragically, Mary and her children had already experienced the loss of a loved one. They knew firsthand that a member of their family could leave home and never come back. The Stavik family moved to Whatcom County when Mandy was in seventh grade. They'd lived in Alaska, and Mandy's older brother, Brent, went on a bow hunting trip in 1975 when he was 17 years old, and he was found shot to death. To this day, his murder remains unsolved. His body was just found in the woods. Mandy's parents were divorced in 1974, and her dad still lived in Alaska. But on that day, Mary knew her daughter Mandy wasn't the type to not come home after a jog or really any time. So Mary picks up the phone and starts calling neighbors, Mandy's circle of friends. In a tight-knit community like Acme, it's a place where everyone knows everyone. And it wasn't long before Mandy's disappearance spread like wildfire. Mary and Lee go looking for Mandy, retracing her jogging route. Again, nothing. By the time they return, Mandy still isn't there, but Kyra, their beloved German shepherd, is home. With one look at Kyra, Mandy's family instantly knows that something horrible has happened. Kyra their loyal, faithful, protective dog is now cowering, her tail tucked. It's clear Kyra has been through something. Her hindquarters are covered with silt from the river. Meantime, the two guys that Mandy and Yoko were planning on hanging out with that night, Brad and Tom, show up at the Stavik house to help with the search. It isn't long before Mandy's ex, Rick, also arrives to help the family. Even though Mandy has been missing for just two and a half hours, Mary calls the police at around 5.30, and it's all hands on deck. The Whatcom County Search and Rescue is called out with bloodhounds and a human tracker to find Mandy. Right away, the tracker finds some disturbing clues close to Mandy's home. There's a spot on the shoulder of the road, and to the trained eye of the tracker, there were suspicious impressions in the dirt. These scuffle marks captured a snapshot of some kind of struggle between two people. The tracker, following his instincts and training, was drawn to grass nearby, pointing to it. He said most likely the scuffle had carried over to the grass, and as the tracker continued, he went to a nearby ditch, and there he found traces of river silt, the same kind of mud that had been found on the hind legs of Kyra, Mandy's dog. But there was no sign of Mandy. Over the holiday weekend, the search for Mandy continued frantically. 
The rural area was rife with secluded terrain, pockets of hidden nooks and crannies, deep woods, and thick bush. The area was searched by air. Searchers on horseback traversed the remote trails. On the third day, Monday, November 27th, a contingent of searchers were paddling the Nooksack River when someone pointed to something in the crook of the river's edge. It was upstream from Mandy's home, at the south fork of the Nooksack River. Icy cold and slow-moving water flowed over something pinkish in the shallows. The boat maneuvered out of the flow of the main river, closer and closer to the object. It was the body of a woman, naked, except for jogging shoes and socks. It was Mandy Stavik. In that moment, it was clear that a search and rescue mission was now a homicide investigation. Mandy's body was left undisturbed, and Whatcom County Homicide Detective Ron Peterson quickly made his way to the scene by boat. Ron had never met Mandy, but after this massive search by the community for days and days, everyone felt like they knew her. I can still see her. Um, that picture will never go out of my carousel upstairs in my brain. But she was face down. Her head was downstream. The river at that point was very slow moving. It was kind of a little side eddy. Uh, and it wasn't that deep. And so she was floating face down. Her knees were just barely bumping on the gravel bottom every once in a while. Just kind of floating really gently. And she was kind of in a, um, if you were to stand her up, she was in a stooped position. I think it's clear that you can tell by that description, retired Detective Ron Peterson, he'd be the first to say that this moment in time would affect his life forever. It's been decades. And yet, as he describes seeing Mandy in the river, it's like no time has passed. He knows what's coming next as he mentally prepares himself for the grim work ahead. He leans into his training and commitment to his pledge to protect and serve which for someone like Ron, that's everything. Ron's a very dedicated detective. He's a devils-in-the-details kind of guy. Right now, knee-deep in that water, beside Mandy, he's obsessing about DNA collection. Which is saying something. Remember, this is 1989, when DNA collection to aid in crime-fighting was in its infancy. But Ron was the type of investigator who welcomed change and new technologies to help aid in criminal investigations. And to say that he was meticulous, well, that's an understatement. I was always seeking new knowledge, new technology. And when I was reading and hearing about DNA, I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing stuff. You know, we can get evidence from an individual, from another human being, and compare it to another human being. Ron already had special training as a fingerprint expert. A skill he felt was like having a crime-fighting superpower. You know, this is the print that I lifted from the scene, and these are your cards, and they're a match. How do you explain that? It's a lot different than he said, she said. It's pretty hard to duck those kinds of questions when you've got solid evidence. I loved that. Ron had read about DNA technology and was so anxious to learn more during his specialty training at the FBI Academy at Quantico. There, his mentor would explain the ins and outs of the new technology and how to successfully collect the evidence. There's something coming down the pike for us that's going to be very beneficial to the medical world, science world now. It's called DNA, and it, it will be the, another way where we can positively make an identification. Just a few months before Mandy's murder, 
there was a horrible sexual assault case where a beloved grandmother in the community was brutalized. It was a rape of an elderly lady up in Point Roberts was like everybody's grandma. Ron carefully processed a blanket at the scene and sent a sample to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. And that case would be the first time in the United States that the FBI testified in a court of law using DNA evidence that would ultimately lead to the conviction of a suspect based on that DNA evidence. Ron was able to use his DNA lab training that he'd learned back at Quantico and put it into practice in Whatcom County. I saw a big stain in the middle of it. I knew what that had to be. Um, I seized it and I called my colleague at the FBI lab and I was so excited and so was he. And he guided me on how to package it and get it shipped off to them, follow all the chain of custody procedures. And six months later, we got a positive match on the guy up the street who we were looking at. So after going through all of that and the trial and the scientists, I worked up evidence in a case that turned out to be the first time in the United States that the FBI came and testified in a court of law at a positive identification using DNA in a criminal manner. It was big for us. We'll be back after a quick break. On that day, as Ron stood over Mandy's body in the river, even though it was the very early stages of DNA collection and crime fighting, Ron was experienced in both collecting and preserving DNA evidence. And this is where his mind was at, the preservation of potential evidence. I was at the river recovering Mandy. I thought, holy cow, you know, the river either destroyed our evidence and it's washed away or by the way she was floating in the river head down, maybe the water kept that evidence up inside of her. And so that was a real issue for me when we recovered her body and how to literally pick her up out of the river so we wouldn't lose any evidence. And the only way to really do it is to just get in the water with her. If you'll recall, at this point, she'd been face down in the water as he gently turns Mandy over in the river and faces her. He's just not prepared for what he would see, how he would feel. is breaking. And yet at the same time, he knows what he has to do, what he must do, as he steals himself to the task ahead. Now is not the time to cry for Mandy. Those tears will come later. He focuses that emotion into the job, into doing everything he can to preserve any possible DNA evidence. The fact that Mandy was naked left little doubt in his mind that she'd been sexually assaulted. But the fact that she was in the water also meant that any potential DNA left behind by the killer would be a miracle to collect. She didn't have anything on except shoes and socks on a friendship bracelet. That was it. So when I rolled her over, I wanted her head and shoulders to be high and her knees and legs to be high and her buttocks to be low so that anything that was there would not wash out. As he's holding Mandy in his arm, 
He couldn't help but look at her as a father to this young girl he had never met, but gently says, I gotcha, I gotcha. The only thing holding him together was the belief that what he did next would set the stage for the investigation to come, that the evidence, if properly collected, would ultimately lead them to her killer. At the riverbank, where Mandy's body was found, there weren't any footprints or tire tracks, no evidence to point to how she'd gotten into the river and by whom. Investigators would find footfalls and tire tracks by a nearby field known as the Homestead. It was an isolated place for teens to hang out, but it wasn't clear if the tracks and footfalls were related to Mandy's abduction and murder or just the remnants from partying teens. The following day, November 28th, an autopsy was performed by Dr. Goldfogel. It was clear from the scratches on Mandy's body that she had most likely been running for her life. Her legs, bottom, and arms were covered with scratches. They were able to piece together a likely scenario. Most of the scratches were on the front and sides of her legs. And because these scratches ran parallel, it was believed that the wounds had occurred when she was still alive and most likely while she was in motion, as if running through the brush and blackberry bushes along the riverbank where her body was ultimately found. Dr. Goldfogel also determined that Mandy had been struck in the right forehead and that this blow caused a massive concussion. But it wasn't clear how Mandy received the blow, where it had happened, and what object was used to deliver the blow. It was believed that the blunt force trauma to the head had occurred just before or right after Mandy's death. Mandy didn't have any defensive wounds to her hands or foreign DNA under her fingernails, and there was no evidence of strangulation. Mandy's cause of death was ruled as freshwater drowning. Based on the contents of her stomach, she died between 3.30 and 4.30 p.m., the day she'd went for a jog. During the autopsy, it was confirmed that Mandy had been sexually assaulted. Ron was on pins and needles. At this point, without any foreign DNA under her fingernails, the only hope they had to connect the killer to the crime was a potential semen sample. But after being in the water, would that even be possible? When I attended the autopsy and Dr. Goldfogel, I was telling them, you know, maybe, maybe. And he went in and got samples. And with a smile on his face, he said, we've got so, because of my experience with that first case in the United States, I was aware when we recovered Mandy, and I'd like to say that we took the proper precautions to preserve that evidence. At the conclusion of the autopsy, it was determined that Mandy had been kidnapped and raped while she was on her jog, and that she died fleeing her captor. It's believed that the killer was most likely driving a vehicle, because Mandy was just too fast a runner. It would have been tough to catch up with her if the assailant was on foot. The theory is that the killer had a gun that he used to gain control of Mandy to get her into his vehicle. They believe that the killer kicked Kyra, Mandy's dog, so hard that she'd landed into a ditch. Remember, Kyra had returned home cowering, and they'd found river mud on Kyra that matched the mud in the ditch near to where they believed that Mandy had been abducted. Authorities believe that the killer brought Mandy to a location a few miles away from where he picked her up by gunpoint, and there he sexually assaulted her, at which point she tried to flee to get away, remember those scratches up and down her legs and arms, as if she'd been running through thick brush and sticker bushes. At some point, the assailant caught up to Mandy, hit her in the head, 
which knocked her unconscious, and he placed her in the river to drown. The semen was preserved. A DNA profile would be developed from the sample. Meanwhile, nearly a thousand people went to Mandy's funeral. In small-town Americana, where people left their doors unlocked, Mandy's rape and murder felt like an assault on everyone. Mandy's family was... I can't even begin to imagine or describe that kind of grief. The community, stunned, terrified. How does a young college student go for a jog in her country neighborhood, and then this happens? Would the killer strike again? But this one was different in so far as I think she was a symbol of small-town America. She was a symbol of what we all wanted when I was growing up as a kid and, and lived the American dream. Uh, you know, I, that was a really big deal, and most of all felt that way. And it was like an assault on that ideal, assault on that way of life. It's like, how could you do this to, to our community? A drifter was questioned, and his DNA was compared to the profile, but it wasn't a match. At first, Mandy's ex-boyfriend, Rick Zender, was questioned. Mandy and Rick had dated on and off for around three years in high school, and Rick had brought Mandy home from college for Thanksgiving. But Rick was quickly ruled out as a suspect. His DNA wasn't a match. As investigators canvassed the area and began talking to people, it was unbelievable that no one seemed to have seen anything. The last witness to see Mandy alive was a man who was about to pull out of his driveway and stopped to let Mandy run by, only about an eighth of a mile from her home. She'd almost made it back. Our initial thoughts were somebody moving through the area because it was right broad daylight in the middle of the day. There was a time period when it was hunting season. We thought, well, maybe some people came from another community and saw a crime of opportunity. Maybe the person is dead. Maybe they're already in prison. Uh, in the canvassing, we were looking for something that stood out based on information we had. Investigators were besieged by tips, but nothing panned out. It was amazing that they had a DNA profile of the killer, but there wasn't this huge national database to compare it to like we have now. This was a time when CODIS, the National Convicted Sex Offender Registry, was still a pilot project back in 1990. It wasn't until the passage of the DNA Identification Act of 1994, which would allow the FBI to establish a national DNA tracking system that law enforcement could use to match criminals to crimes based on their DNA, that DNA really started to be a viable crime-fighting tool. So essentially, at this point, the only way they were going to be able to find Mandy's killer was to find a suspect. And every suspect that they found were ultimately eliminated through their DNA because it didn't match the sample. Mandy Stavick's murder case technically went cold in terms of leads, but as far as the investigation... The message was clear to us. Mandy, top priority. Whenever we can, whatever it takes, stay on it. Over the next 20 years, detectives kept a photograph of Mandy on their desks, a constant reminder of the mandate that had never faded, even as the years rolled on. And new detectives were given a crack at the case you know, the whole fresh eyes, was there something that someone had missed? In 2009, Detective Kevin Bohe was the lead investigator on the case. He had been just a rookie deputy when Mandy had been murdered in 1989. And now, he began poring over the investigation with a fine-tooth comb. 
who had been interviewed, who hadn't. But it was in 2013 that the course of the investigation would change. A random conversation between two women would change everything. It was a hot summer day in Whatcom County. A group of moms were sitting on the grass and chatting as they watched their kids have a blast at the Birch Bay water slides. Somehow the conversation turned to the Mandy Stavick murder investigation. Two women within the group spoke up. Both women had grown up in the area, went to the same high school as Mandy. And for whatever reason in that moment, one of the women said, I know who killed Mandy. And another woman said, I do too. The two women at the water park started sharing their stories. Stories that they had never told the police. It's a very small town and neither had felt comfortable coming forward because even though they believed that they knew who the killer was, they didn't have any proof. But now, decades later, these two women who barely knew each other at this water park sitting in the grass, surrounded by kids and other moms, at long last felt comfortable sharing what they had been holding on to for so long. One woman brought up something she'd filed away long ago. She remembered being at a softball game and a bunch of teens went to get ice cream. She'd been 15 at the time. And there was this guy, Timothy Bass, who was much older. He went with them. This was just a few months before Mandy's murder. And as they all piled into a truck, Timothy sat beside her and she felt like he was acting creepy, sort of leering at her, looking into her eyes and saying how beautiful they were, touching her leg. And it was just an encounter she never forgot because it just felt really different and weird. There was something about Timothy Bass that wasn't right, but she didn't tell anyone. It was just a feeling. Spurred on by the woman's story, another mom described an encounter that she'd had with Timothy Bass back in 1991, a couple of years after Mandy's murder. She was a young mom and she'd been home alone with her baby. When out of the blue, she hears a knock at the door. She goes to open it and it's Timothy. And he asks to use her phone. He says that he's been hunting all day and he needed to call his wife. So, trying to be nice, she lets him in, but from the beginning, he's acting kind of strange. He starts dialing, but it seemed like a ruse because she hears this pre-recorded sound of an operator saying he dialed the wrong number. And then the energy in the room changes. It had already been strange to begin with. He just shows up and it just seems kind of scary when he starts saying how he would always drive by her house and that he was in love with her and that he wanted to have sex with her right there and then. As she's describing this, she says that she remembered feeling absolutely terrified, but somehow is able to swallow that down and just demands that he leave immediately. But he refuses. Then she threatens to call the police. And finally, he leaves. The one lady, she recounted a story of him coming to her house where she was alone in her home and with her baby. And he was commenting to her and how he'd always liked her and he'd like to have a sexual relationship with her and she was able to dominating to the point where he left on his own and I think what saved her life is that baby. After the two women had shared their stories with each other, they sort of looked at each other gobsmacked and wondered, maybe it was time to tell the police. One of the women happened to know an old high school friend who worked in the sheriff's office. And she told him, and he brought this information to Detective Bowie, who was working Mandy Stavick's case. And the women came in and shared their stories. 
This case was different than any other is because we all remembered. We all kept a picture on our desk, and even the newer officers that were working on the case in today's time were affected by it. Two of the detectives that were working with Kevin Bowie went to school with Mandy, knew her, and what a coincidence that is when they, in their adult life, end up in the sheriff's office in Whatcom County, where they grew up, and then they also end up being assigned to Mandy's case, and they also end up being contributors to solving the case. This new information on Timothy Bass was a shock. Because when he was a young man, he was never looked at as a suspect. As a young man, he was just, he could have been looked at as just a quiet boy. Because none of the information we know now, we knew then. I mean, other students weren't coming rushing to us and saying, this kid's weird. People in the neighborhood weren't coming to us saying, watch this guy, he's weird. There was none of that. Because mark my words, if we would have got any kind of information like that, we would have focused in on it just like we did when it became known during the final stages of the investigation. One of the things I always tell the investigators and the people is, well, if a woman's talking to you and you're investigating a crime of some kind and the woman says to you, he is creepy or he made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, you need to pay real close attention because I'm a firm believer in that world that women have a sixth sense that most people, most men don't have. This new information raised alarm bells. Suddenly, Timothy Bass was on their radar, and it was around the same time Detective Bowie had a light bulb moment inspired by a true crime book that he'd read. Kevin had read a book, it's called The Blooding, where when it happened in England, where there was a small village and there was a heinous crime, a rape, I believe it was, that happened, and they knew about DNA, and so they went to all of the people in this community and got samples of their blood. And they asked for them and they gave them voluntarily. And Kevin was thinking about it and he said, why can't I do that? The book is called The Blooding, the true story of the Narborough Village Murders. It was published in 1989 and written by Joseph Wamba, who chronicles the investigation of two brutal murders in small English villages that were ultimately solved through the collection of DNA from the communities to find the killer. Detective Bowie gets approval to start collecting samples from men around the county of a certain age who had lived near Mandy. They even track down men who had moved out of the area, and they ask these men to give a voluntary DNA sample, which they would compare with that lone sample so painstakingly collected by Ron decades before. More Murder Chronicles after the break. It was 2013 when detectives rolled up to the door of Timothy Bass. He'd been 22 at the time of Mandy's murder, and he'd lived just down the street from Mandy on Strand Road. You might recall hearing the name Bass earlier in the show. Timothy Bass was the older brother of Tom Bass. I mentioned Tom earlier. Tom had made plans to go out that Friday night with Mandy and her college roommate Yoko and Brad after Mandy had gotten home from her jog. So Detective Bowie is at Timothy's door and is explaining why he would like a DNA sample related to the Mandy Stavick murder investigation. And a normal response might have been, oh, right, my brother Tom had plans to go out with Mandy, Brad and Yoko the night she was killed. He actually helped try to find her as soon as she was reported missing. But Timothy didn't say that. 
He didn't even say something to like, oh, yeah, of course, I remember. It's so horrible. Mandy Stavik was murdered. She was my neighbor. He didn't say that either. He acted like he didn't even know who Mandy was. He looked up and was like, hmm, searching his memory and said, oh, that was the girl that was found in the river. He then told Detective Bowie that he didn't really know Stavik and initially said he didn't even know where she lived. And as far as a DNA sample went, not going to happen. Timothy Bass flat out refused to offer it up without a warrant. But when they first came to him, his comment was, no, I've seen a lot of shows on TV where they set up people and they're falsely accused because of a false DNA. I don't think I want to give that. Of course, investigators were suspicious. It was highly unlikely for anyone growing up in the area when Mandy was murdered to forget the case especially someone who lived as close as he did to her and the connection with his brother. But refusing to give a DNA sample wasn't an admission of guilt. There was nothing tying Timothy Bass to the case other than the circumstantial tie, which is he lived down the street from Mandy. And two moms saying he acted creepy decades ago. It was compelling, but it wasn't enough to get a warrant for his DNA. Timothy Bass had a wife and three kids and worked for a bakery in a nearby town, about 20 minutes away from Mandy's house. He had no criminal record. Investigators flagged the file, but without any physical evidence tying him to the case, they had to go back for more. Police would go back to Timothy Bass again in 2015 and talk about the Stavik investigation. But again, he denied having any knowledge of the case and refused to give a DNA sample. But Detective Bowie wasn't done with Timothy Bass. He knew that Timothy was a longtime employee of the Franz Bakery. He was a delivery truck driver. And with this information, he reached out to a woman named Kim Wagner, who was a manager for the Franz Bakery. And he asked if he could get permission from the company to swab the delivery trucks for touch DNA, which would be left behind in a work truck. The detective didn't tell Kim who the employee was, only that he wanted touch DNA. Kim was sympathetic but it wasn't her call to give this kind of approval. And so she passed along contact information for the corporate office who denied to authorize law enforcement searching their vehicles or collecting any touch DNA. And again, the case stalled. But Detective Bowie was persistent. He reached out to Kim Wagner again. This time, he asked her for the general area of Timothy Bass's delivery route. This time, Kim had a couple of questions of her own. She asked if this line of inquiry was related to the Mandy Stavik murder investigation, and Detective Bowie nodded yes. She then asked if Timothy Bass was a potential suspect. He gave her a look that led her to believe that he was, to which Kim Wagner shared Timothy Bass's regular route, and a team was put together who started following Timothy Bass. They wanted to get a surreptitious DNA sample. It wasn't much, anything the average person just throws away in their daily routine. Cigarette butts, bottles or cups that he drank from, gum, half-eaten food. But the entire surveillance operation was a bust. Timothy Bass didn't throw anything away. We got information that he took out his own garbage, that he washed his truck. He was methodical in making sure that toward later years um, he would... Uh, not put his garbage out on the street. He would take it somewhere. He always took his garbage from work. He never left anything in his locker or in his work truck. Detective Bowie reached out to Kim again and told her they weren't able to get anything. 
On her own volition, Kim started watching Tim Bass. Now that she knew that he was a suspect in Mandy's murder, she couldn't help herself. She had to get involved. She hadn't known Mandy personally, but she'd grown up in the area, had been impacted by the loss like so many people in the community, and she remembered seeing Mary, Mandy's mom, in the news media over the years, so desperate to find her daughter's killer to get justice for Mandy. Kim took it upon herself to be on the lookout for anything Timothy Bass threw away. In this, she wouldn't need permission from corporate. It's not against the law to pick up garbage that someone's left behind in public. So Kim waited and watched. She constantly was changing the garbage cans so they would always be empty, especially if she knew he was coming in. That way, if he threw anything away, she would be there to scoop it up. It would take months because she too noticed that even at work, he always took his personal garbage with him. Most delivery drivers left garbage in their trucks, but not Timothy Bass. But one day in August of 2017, Kim watched Timothy Bass drink water from a plastic cup and unbelievably, he threw it away in the wastebasket in the employee break room. When he was gone, Kim made a beeline for the garbage, picked up the cup, put it in a plastic bag, and tucked it into her desk. Two days later, she was watching Bass drink from a soda can, and then he threw it away in that same wastebasket in the break room. Of course, she retrieved it and stored it with the cup. Meantime, Detective Bowie had no idea that Kim had done this. He'd not asked her to do it and had not told her how to handle the item or store it, but you can bet he was there to pick up both items after Kim texted him. They met in the bakery parking lot and Detective Bowie, I'm sure with fingers crossed, sent both items to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab for analysis. And they waited until the call came in and the crime lab confirmed that the DNA collected from Bass's soda can and the cup matched the male DNA collected from the semen so many years before. Because of my experience with that first case in the United States, I was aware when we recovered Mandy, and I'd like to say that we took the proper precautions to preserve that evidence, and 30 years later, that same evidence was a match. In December 2017, Timothy Bass was arrested at work for Mandy Stavick's murder. He was brought down to the station and actually agreed to an interview. At first, he totally denied having any contact with Mandy. But investigators were like, if you didn't have any physical contact with Mandy, then how could your semen have been found inside of her body? At which point, Tim Bass changed tack. He soon realized, despite all of his precautions, that they had gotten his DNA surreptitiously, which is when he changed his tune saying that he'd had a secret sexual relationship with Mandy that no one knew about, except his dad, who had died. It was more of a friendship type thing. We just talked, and, and uh, then it just kind of grew into uh, more, more of a physical thing, and we didn't even really do it that much. So it was more kissing and stuff. After listening to Timothy Bass's denials in that interrogation room, Detective Kevin Bohe charged Timothy Bass with the murder, kidnapping, and rape of Mandy Stavick. But to say that, that this guy had a relationship with her, everybody said the same thing, bogus. Are you kidding me? Him and Mandy? Never in a million years. In fact, we did get some anecdotal information that Mandy had said herself, oh, this guy's creepy. That day, the sheriff drove out to Mandy's mom's house. She was still alive. 
knocked on her door and told her what she'd been waiting to hear for decades, that they'd arrested the man they believed was responsible for murdering her daughter. It was Mary's 81st birthday. At the trial, Tim Bass's brother, Tom, would testify that his brother had been nervous after police contacted him the second time. That's when he told him he'd had sex with Mandy Stavick when she'd been home for Thanksgiving in 1989. Tom was shocked and was like, how had it happened? To which Timothy said, oh, I just went up to her and said, oh, you're keeping fit. And that was it. Bass had told Tom that he and Mandy had slept together a couple of times before she'd gone off to college as well. Then he asked his brother to tell police that he too had slept with Mandy, as if to imply that she'd slept around. Here's Tom Bass testifying for the prosecution at his brother's trial. I guess to make it look like she got around, uh, that would be my only, you know, that's probably why he said that. And then he asked me again, he said, you believe me, right? But I was I didn't know what to say. Timothy Bass's former wife also testified that she had been present when Bass had asked his mother, Sandy, if they could all agree to tell the police that his dead father was the one who killed Mandy Stavick. What happened at the time when you went with your husband and uh, you contacted Sandy Bass? He asked her, can we say dad did it? And what was he referring to? The... Um, Mandy Stavick murder. Okay. And what was the response of Sandra Bass? What, what did she, she do anything physically? Did she... Yes. Yeah. She put her hands over her face and like this and, and paused her in and said no. And as far as the defendant's father, Dad, was he alive at that time? No. Had he been deceased for a period of time? Yes. Ultimately, a jury would convict Timothy Bass in the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Mandy Stavick in May of 2019. We, the jury, find the defendant, Timothy Forrest Bass, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree as charged in count one. And Timothy Bass would adamantly deny any involvement in her murder and say that he was not guilty. I would first like to say that I'm 100% innocent of this crime. Furthermore, I don't believe I received a fair trial. In saying that, though, a better man than me says I should say very little today. I give this day to the staff of On July 2nd, a judge handed Timothy Bass the stiffest sentence possible, 27 years in prison. To the Stavick family and Mandy Stavick's friends, there's only so much the law allows me to do. No power here on earth can bring her back. Given the brutal circumstances of her death, the loss suffered by her and her family and friends, that time forward, Mr. Bass has engaged in active efforts to avoid detection for his crime, all the way up to his most recent efforts to persuade various family members to lie for him. But given the brutal circumstances of her death and the lack of demonstrated remorse for over 30 years, I am prepared to issue the court sentence. Timothy Forrest Bass, I impose the maximum sentence of 320 months in the custody of the Washington State Department of Corrections. Upon your release from incarceration, you will report immediately to the Community Corrections Office at 1400 North Forest Street in Bellingham to complete a year of community custody. 
Ron believes that the arrest and conviction of Timothy Bass wasn't only justice for Mandy and her family, but also the community and a real validation of his life's work. Great way to end a career in evidence is to be the one that, you know, and, and we all had equal uh, emphasis and efforts. But for me, thinking in the world of evidence, it was like, oh, I'm so glad that I wasn't an eight to four worker. I'm so glad that I had that passion. I'm so glad that I, you know, had all those sleepless nights, you know, and, and all of that. It was like, oh man, this is it for me. I am so happy. Before I let you go, I wanted to remind you to check out our bonus content. After every episode, my producer Brandon Morgan and I go over the case in more detail. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.